This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Welcome or welcome back to Self-Work. I'm Dr. Margaret, and I'm so glad you're here. But I'm not here today. I actually am on a vacation with my family, and Christine Mathias and John Crowley, my wonderful, wonderful team, are taking over for the next two episodes. I don't really know what they've chosen to feature, but today we'll feature Christine's choice, and I'll be as interested in it as you are. Here's Christine. Hi, everybody. Christine here. As you likely know, Margaret is on a well-deserved vacation in Scotland, which means I get to take the self-work reins this week, which I love. And if you're hearing the subtext there, then I'm a bit of a control freak. You got that right. So while I have the keys to the palace, I wanted to thank all of you for listening, writing, reading, sharing, commenting, and just generally for being a part of this wonderful community that Margaret has built. You might know that I've been working with her from nearly the very beginning of her journey when she extended her reach beyond the physical walls of her private practice, from initially creating a website where she could write to share her thoughts, to creating this podcast a few years later, to writing a book, and to who knows what the future holds for all of us. And by us, I do mean you too. So, for the second time around, I settled on an episode that I think of as one of our foundational ones. It's 15 good questions to ask your potential therapist. Whether you're currently in therapy, considering therapy, or one of those people that Margaret likes to say wouldn't darken the doorstep of a therapist's office, this episode covers a lot of territory and will still likely have something enlightening for you. I also picked this one because in it, Margaret mentions our very first self-work episode, 001, in which she discusses what she calls her seven commandments of good therapy. Now, if you're subscribed to our newsletter, that will likely ring familiar to you because you've received our ebook of the same name. If you're not subscribed to our newsletter, why not? It's only once a week. We never will spam you, and we'd love to have you there. Head over to drmargaretrutherford.com and sign up. So without further ado, here's this week's second time around, 15 good questions to ask your potential therapist. One of the first therapists to write a book about her own mental illness, it's called An Unquiet Mind, and it was written by Kay Redfield Jameson, is a classic on bipolar disorder. She remained a teacher and is a highly acclaimed professor and writer. But I read somewhere, and now I can't find it, so take this please with a grain of salt. I read that she stopped doing therapy after she wrote the book. That stuck with me because here I was in the middle of blogging and podcasting and was still doing therapy. She taught and wrote, but if my memory is correct, she didn't feel that she could continue doing therapy since she'd been so open about her own mental illness. In 2016, I made a very different choice. I made a very conscious choice to be open about my panic, my anorexia, my divorces, all things that I'm very glad that I made that choice about. But many clinicians would be uncomfortable and are uncomfortable about being open about themselves. That's just an individual difference. Now, I totally believe that when someone comes into therapy with me, my focus needs to be solely on them. That's what makes the therapeutic relationship unique. 
that and hopefully the experience and expertise that the clinician uses to guide you to reach the goals that you want. Depending on what school of thought that therapist relies on or builds on to do their work or to provide structure to the therapy itself. Then the amount of openness that a clinician might have with you is definitely tied to that school of thought. It has always intrigued me that at the same time that many in our culture are trying to move forward to decrease the stigma around seeking therapeutic help, therapy itself, at least now for many years, remained mysterious. What exactly happened in therapy? How do you decrease stigma, or what might be simple ignorance, if no one talks about what happens? You might tell a coworker or a friend that you visited a lawyer about a divorce, for example, but that you'd visited a therapist? In years past, a definite no. When I first moved to Arkansas from Texas, in fact, I was stunned at how much stigma still existed here. And Texas, after all, wasn't known at the time as being highly attuned to emotional work or needs. It was in the early 90s, after all. But in Dallas, where I lived and trained, and as a more metropolitan area, it was much more commonplace to hear someone say they went to therapy. But when I moved to Fayetteville, people would ask me about waiting in their car to come in. Did I have a separate exit to leave? Would they be dropped from their insurance if they came? Would an insurance company report them being in therapy to their work? If their boss called, would I keep confidentiality? Lots of questions, most based on the fear of stigma and unforeseen complications and a lot of distrust. Much, I'm so glad to say, has changed in 30 years. Focusing on your mental health as well as your medical health has greatly gained in acceptance. There are TV shows about therapy and certainly lots and lots of podcasts. Within the last few years, all kinds of therapists accrue thousands of followers on Instagram or TikTok. So you might think that beginning to see a therapist isn't complicated anymore. Well, maybe, maybe not. What has not changed is the vulnerability of opening yourself up, however slowly or carefully, to anyone. Telling them things that you've kept under lock and key for damn good reason. So there's an understandable eagerness and actual need to know something about a therapist before you go into that first session. You need reassurance. You might think that a therapist would offer this information freely before you even had to ask, and some do. But some clinicians have their staff schedule appointments for them, or now it's often done through an online portal. My personal view is that any therapist should talk to you if you request it before seeing you in person. Lawyers often do first consultations for free, but then they charge you for the rest of the time you're in contact with them, right? Phone calls and everything. Most therapists will charge for a first session, but not for other times they talk to you. So asking for time to share with them a few questions about what their experience might be is quite legit. And actually, I believe an initial conversation tends to set up the relationship for success. Not always, of course. But remember, it's a two-way street. A therapist can also determine if their experience fits your needs and vice versa. So what's the absolute best way to get the skivvy on a therapist? What I believe first and foremost is to ask your friends who they've seen in the past. I understand that this means opening up to those friends. But a personal description from someone you already trust goes a long way. Having them say, oh yeah, he helped me see my situation in a whole different light. Or, I felt so comfortable with her, she was tuned into me from the minute I walked in the room. 
You can also reach out to your family doctor or OBGYN for suggestions. Lawyers and pastors often know therapists as well. But maybe you're not in that situation, as many of the people who reached out to me aren't. They simply don't know anyone who's ever been to therapy, or they're not quite willing to ask. So first, let's hear from AG1 Athletic Greens, and after that, I'll be back with the questions you might benefit from asking. Our next partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it literally every day. I gave AG1 a try because I wanted a single solution that supports my entire body and covers my nutritional bases every day. I wanted better gut health, a boost in energy, immune system support. I take it in the morning before starting my day and I make sure and leave it out for my husband because he tends to forget. I love knowing that I'm starting my day so incredibly well and I wouldn't change a thing because it's really helped me the last two or three years I've taken it. And here's a fact. Since 2010, they've improved their formula 52 times in the pursuit of making this nutrition supplement possible and the best it can be. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash selfwork. And that's a new link, drinkag1.com slash selfwork. Check it out. So let's start by talking about some different scenarios, all of which are pretty typical in therapy. First, there's the person who doesn't know much about therapy, but knows they don't feel like themselves or that their friends are concerned about them. So this would, of course, influence the questions they had for someone like me. The questions are important, but just as important is what you notice about the way the therapist describes things, the manner in which they talk with you. Do they already feel empathic to you? Do they seem interested in the reasons why you're asking these particular questions? I will tell you, my very first podcast was on this topic. So it's 001, (laughs) and it's called What is Good Therapy? And I will have that in your show notes. That's how important I think this is. So here are some of the questions that I think are wonderful and, again, very, very legit to ask. Number one. How long have you been a therapist? What do you believe happens in therapy that actually helps someone? Number two, where did you get your training? Here, you want to make sure you know what their licensure is, meaning what are the letters after their name? How did they get licensed to become a mental health professional? Are they a life coach, a licensed professional counselor, a social worker, a marriage and family therapist, or a psychologist? And are they fully certified or do they still have to have supervision? And again, I'm going to include a link on open counseling that talks about all these different kinds of therapists because it's really important for you to know the difference in their backgrounds. Here's the third question. Is there a typical amount of time that therapy takes? I hope you're getting out a a piece of paper and a pen or something or jotting these down because literally they're great questions. And some of my Facebook group suggested these as well. Number four, this was mine. What do you think are your strengths as a therapist? For some people, they may say, I really use my technique well. I've been doing EMDR for a long time or whatever their technique. For some, they might say, I get along with a lot of different kinds of people. It really depends. I love what I do. (laughs) 
That's a good one. Number five, what will the sessions be like? How long are they? How many times do you typically see someone? Those are very important questions. Number six, are you trained in a specific kind of therapy? And if so, what is that? And can you explain it to me? Number seven, this is one I sometimes get. Are you going to diagnose me? Will you share your diagnosis with me? Will that diagnosis be confidential? Or how will you use that diagnosis? If you use insurance, that diagnosis will be given to your insurance company. But it's never shared with anyone else without your consent. Number eight, do you have any spiritual or religious beliefs that guide you as a therapist? If so, what are they? Now, this one's a little tricky because someone might say, I don't want to share that with you. But you do have the right to ask. Generally speaking, if they do have a strong affiliation with some sort of religion or spiritual life, they will tell you. They may even have advertised themselves as a certain kind of counselor, a Buddhist counselor, a Christian counselor, or a Jewish counselor. Number nine, do you have additional certifications or training in specific treatment techniques? Now, if you're starting out and you really don't know what's wrong, this may not be a question that you really know to ask. Because again, there are certain techniques that are good for certain conditions or disorders, but if you don't know what those are, then you can't really investigate the techniques either. So this might, this question might be something for later, but it is helpful to know. And number 10, when do you decide to refer or do you ever refer? Do you regularly refer to other practitioners who might have expertise that you don't have? Or ancillary therapies like massage therapy, yoga, nutritionist, somatic therapies. Now, the next questions should be covered in a business contract that you sign prior to entering treatment. I talk a lot about that in that 001, What's Good Therapy? But to make sure I point them out, here they are. Number 11, how much do you charge? Very important. And what kind of payment do you accept? Do you have a sliding scale of any kind? Do you charge for missed appointments? And what's the process for rescheduling or cancellation? Again, you want to understand what the boundaries are around payment. Number 12, how does insurance work? Do you take my insurance? Will your office file or will I need to do that? Again, the business of the relationship is very important for it to be coherent and very clear and very consistent. Number 13, are you available after office hours if there's an emergency? Many therapists are not. At 5 or 6 o'clock, they are not available. And their voicemails will likely say, this is an emergency. If you're in an emergency, please dial 911 or go to your nearest emergency room. Other therapists choose to be available. That's not a good or a bad thing. It's the therapist's choice. But it's important for you to know if they're going to be available or not. Is it okay if I reach out to you via email or text? How do I figure out if something is an emergency or not? Basically, we're talking about boundaries here. Now, some of that is going to arise in general therapy itself because you may not know when you first begin therapy that you may reach a point where you need someone in an emergent crisis after all you're just starting out. So this can also be a rotating kind of conversation or a conversation that happens over time. Number 14, a very practical question. Is your office accessible, such as wheelchair accessibility? And number 15, how do you handle times when you're out of town or not available or when you yourself have to cancel? Again, just an upfront discussion about what the boundaries and expectations are. 
So those are some basic questions that give you an idea of what working with a clinician might be like. However, there are many instances where you've either been in therapy before or you've done your own reading and research and you've learned that a certain kind of therapy has been found to be most helpful with your particular condition or disorder. You must realize that research findings may not fit your particular situation, so you'll have to judge that for yourself. For example, with borderline personality disorder, the technique of DBT, or dialectic behavioral therapy, has been shown to be quite helpful. But let's remember, often it takes time for therapy to uncover or for the therapist to realize there is a personality disorder. Oh, maybe this person has borderline. In fact, I'd shy away from anyone who diagnoses you with a personality disorder in a first session. It is a complicated dynamic, and I think that's certainly risky, if not even unethical. Now, perhaps you could be diagnosed with panic disorder fairly easily or even major depression, but not some of the more complicated mental health issues. Let's stop for a moment and talk about trauma. Trauma is another one of those things that often emerges more slowly in therapy if you don't already know you have it when you enter. So you might begin with a therapist who helps you see yourself as having experienced trauma, but they don't have real trauma experience to help you with that. Sadly, this can happen too easily. As therapists who aren't trained to look for trauma, especially trauma that's developed over time, might miss it. They might not miss an acute trauma like a rape or a tornado ripping through your house. But the kind of trauma that deepens over time may not be evident. I talk a lot about this in my own work with Perfectly Hidden Depression. That is a trauma-based perfectionism that deepens over time. Or perhaps the therapist gets in their own way of even seeing it. In this situation is when you've got to realize that no therapist, however well-intended, and certainly I include myself in this, will be the only therapist you could ever benefit from seeing. I will say that the importance of trauma work and the kinds of treatments that are most effective is being readily seen now by the mental health profession and talked about. So if you know you're looking for a trauma specialist, then ask, what kind of training do you have in trauma work? In specific treatments out there like eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy, internal family systems, and others that show efficacy. Let's talk for a moment longer about termination in therapy. How do you know when it's time to leave a therapist? Or how does the therapist themselves handle it? I've talked before about this topic, so here's that link to that podcast. It was 210. But what I want to stress in today's episode that I did not cover in that one is to remind you of what I said a few minutes ago. No one therapist can have everything you might possibly need in a therapist. When I hear that one of my patients has seen someone else, that's fine. In fact, more than fine. It's like a second opinion. I have blind spots just like everyone else does. So you're not abandoning a therapist or giving them the message they failed you because you might decide that you need or would benefit from another technique or style. I've had people come back after seeing someone else and they tell me what they learned there and I grow as they tell me. But they've come back to me because of something we talked about that they want to follow up on. I'm always referring to other helping professionals, and thus we can work together. Now, there are also things that happen between therapist and client that are just bad practice when you feel unsafe or manipulated in some way. And I'll give you another link to listen to, as well as a Psychology Today post where I wrote about that. But we're running out of time today. (laughs) So... 
Here's my last thought about this. True affection can grow between a therapist and a client or patient, especially when the work has been long and hard. As long as that affection is never acted on, then it's a simple matter of appreciating the quality of the relationship, the trust that has evolved, the warmth and safety that has been experienced. It's a lovely feeling between a therapist and a client to know that they've grown fond of one another and of working together, and then it's time to say goodbye. Speak pipe message from drmargaretrutherford.com. Here's our listener voicemail for today. Thank you so much for this article about being an invisible child. Um, This was something that came up for me in therapy recently, and it just absolutely blew my mind. The hard part for me is that I felt so invisible as a child that I did everything in my power to be seen, and I invented a fake personality, turned myself into kind of the mascot of my family or a class clown, and I realized why that bothered me so much because I was so untrue to myself and I abandoned myself, my true authentic self in the process. And so as painful as these realizations are, thank you so much for this article. Um, It resonated a lot with my experience and I'm no longer labeling myself as the funny one or the artistic one or anything like that. I am just trying to see myself and give value to myself because I know now how important I am and trying to do that work to heal that inner child is the most important thing in my life right now. I particularly liked this blog post myself, as I said in the intro, as it pointed out the many, many ways that there are to experience not being seen, whether it's racial, age, LGBTQ, or gender discrimination, whether it's because of familial abuse or neglect, cultural norms that are forced upon you, whether it's because of shyness, introversion, or the presence of severe mental illness, the list is huge. But I wanted to feature her voicemail to me for you to hear the relief in her voice that someone had noticed that she could be feeling invisible. If any of you feel that way, please look for others that do see you. Those people can make a huge difference in your life. You can look beyond your family, even beyond the friends you currently have if they don't see you, and seek another kind of relationship. But back to the voicemail. She says she built a whole other self so that she'd be seen and abandoned what sounded like perhaps a more introspective self for one that pleased others and got their attention. This kind of revelation is some of the work we've been talking about in this episode some of the really great therapeutic work, and what can happen when the past is seen through a different pair of lenses in such a way that's truly freeing for you. It was exactly this kind of process that helped me see my own childhood through those different lenses and guided me to make changes in my life when I was on a dangerously chaotic path. So many of us find a way and often alter ourselves in the process to get more of what we need from those who, for some reason, aren't appreciating or aren't attuned to who we really are as children. I've included an article in your show notes that describe four different dysfunctional roles that children fall into when they're not seen. They're called the hero, the scapegoat, the lost child, and the mascot or clown. They all have their functionality, but bring with them a rigid set of beliefs and behaviors that need to be challenged and then changed. You might want to take a look at this article and see which role you might have played in your own family. For you don't have to live out your life that way, as this reader is letting us know. 
and the joy you can find in so doing is life-giving and life-altering. Thank you so much for listening. As usual, my team comes through. They're such a great team. I am so very blessed to have them. And I hope that you have some time with your family and friends this week and enjoy your own sense of togetherness. Thank you for being here. I know your time is precious. Please take care of yourself, your family, and those in your community. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.